Welcome to Rock and Ice's My Epic Podcast, presented by Outdoor Research. I'm Daniel Tachik. As you already know, Outdoor Research has been at the forefront of mountain equipment innovation since 1981. Their products have shown them to be committed to improving the climber and alpinist's experience with awesome gear, from jackets to gaiters to bivy sacks. It's not about summits for OR. It's not about finish lines or sends. It's the journey. So if you've got a journey in the near future, check them out. You will not regret it. Everest is home to countless epics. This one comes from accomplished Himalayan climber and guide Chris Warner. It is the story of falling objects. Sometimes it's not only ice. In this case, it could be an oxygen tank. Chris is truly lucky to be alive. As always, thanks Outdoor Research for your continued support of this podcast. These stories really couldn't be brought to life without your commitment to improving the climbers and alpinists' experience. All right, here we go. While today reality TV feeds us a steady diet of packaged petty dramas, back in 2003, the concept was still pretty radical. Our team of six contestants and a dozen Sherpas and cameramen was the first to try to bring reality TV to the summit of Everest. Three dozen of us headed to Tibet in early April, set up an elaborate base camp, and filmed just about every silly thing. My personal favorite emotional breakdown came after a failed plan to climb to Camp 3 when, uh, when one of the contestants whined, We're elite endurance athletes! Stop yelling at us! <laughs> I'd guided to the North Ridge of Everest twice before, so I was cast in the role of senior guide. The North Ridge is an amazing route, with a pretty difficult summit day. Above Camp 3, the ridge is too steep to attack head-on, so the route heads out onto the face, weaving in and out of layers of sedimentary rock and up steep snow slopes and short rock steps. Finally, the slope eases to 10 or 15 degrees, and here, dug into the snow, are the terrace tent sites of High Camp. So from High Camp, Summit Day involves climbing technical cliff bands, usually three steps, and I regret to say stepping over eight frozen bodies. When we studied how these climbers died, all descending from the summit, the common theme is that they just sat down. At these extreme temperatures, death can come really fast, like the waving man froze to death sitting on the rock and his hand still in the air. Or slowly, Fran Arsentiev, who lies on the tilted slope of the base of the fixed lines, died two days after summiting. You won't see her husband, Sergei Arsentiev, because he fell from the north phase while trying to organize her rescue. Your chances of dying on Everest increase over time, the time spent climbing to and from the summit. On the early afternoon of May 22nd, when our TV show reached high camp, the teams that had left the night before were still trying to reach the summit. It was long past the standard turnaround time of 11 a.m. 
The year 2003 was the 50th anniversary of the first summit of Everest, and the whole mountain was just crowded. Compounding the overcrowding, the 22nd was a marginal weather day with gusting winds and at times blowing snow. As a Kuwaiti climber later wrote, it was, quote, a long, hard day, especially for non-pure mountaineers and non-athletes, end quote. Among the 50 climbers strung along the North Ridge, the inexperienced struggled with the technical challenges and created chaos at the second step when they fell and swung out on their joomers. High up in a mixture of ambition and incompetence, climbers kept stumbling toward the summit, but darkness caught them. Our radios crackled with slurred conversations as guides, Sherpas, and clients steadily tired. Oxygen bottles dried up. Weakened climbers stumbled. Teams split. People were suffering from hypothermia, snow blindness, cerebral edema, and, of course, frostbite. Jake Norton, our show's photographer, and I left the tents and spent the night searching the slopes for survivors. We guided more than two dozen climbers back to the tents. The bottles of oxygen we had hoped to summit with were consumed by victims. Our cameramen cuddled hypothermic climbers, trying to warm them. The reality show contestants melted water for the dehydrated. Sherpas injected dexamethasone, a corticosteroid, into the quads of those with swelling brains. Our summit bid became a trauma scene. Triage trumped TV. And by a miracle, everyone survived the night. Once the sun hit camp, the rescue continued. We tied the worst-off folks to short ropes and guided and lowered them down the slopes over rock steps. I found myself running a rescue operation at 27,500 feet, with over 45 climbers somehow involved. In my hands was a rope tethered with a snow-blind climber. Exhausted and unable to see the next foothold, he had to be convinced to take each step. It took nearly an hour to lower him 300 feet. Below the tents, the slope stretched for 250 feet, gently tilted but covered with a layer of windblown ice slabs. Crampons were crucial. A slip here would send you tumbling 7,000 feet down Everest's north face. A few years before, I had just terrifiedly watched a Russian climber cartwheel down this same face. His arms and legs just flapped as he flew past, slamming with a bone-crushing thud onto a rock slab and then bouncing onto the shadowed Great Couloir. He ricocheted from side to side and finally was swallowed by the Bergschrind. My snowblind climber needed to rest, so we stopped for a little breather. A few feet above me stood a cameraman, Michael Brown. The slopes around us were filled with small groups struggling to descend. Each team of two or three was working through its own epic, trying to help each climber with frostbitten hands grip a rope caring for a cerebral edema victim, fighting anxiety, pleading with an exhausted climber to just keep moving. Back at the tents, 335 feet above us, a Sherpa was gathering his team's gear. He emptied sleeping pads, stoves, and pots from the tent and tossed out an oxygen bottle. An oxygen bottle weighs roughly 6.6 pounds, and it's constructed of Kevlar or fiberglass and spun to create a cylinder. Coming out of the top end is a two-inch threaded pipe that screws into the climber's regulator, where a hose leads out to an oxygen mask. The oxygen cylinder is incredibly strong, so it won't explode. The bottles are painted bright orange to make them easy to find in the dark, but that paint 
also makes them extra slippery. The cylinder landed on the wind-blown ice slope, rocketed down it, and launched off the cliff band, an airborne 6.6-pound missile. The cylinder's point of impact was the back of my skull. Imagine the crack of an aluminum bat hitting a fastball, but with a layer of flesh and hair dulling the high-pitched and amplifying the bass. It's a sound you feel in your soul. The bottom of the tank, luckily not the threaded pipe, slammed against my head and slammed my head forward, twisting every resistant muscle, vertebrae, and ligament in my neck, popping the brain from its soft stem, flinging it into the frontal bones of the skull, and shocking the occipital nerve, which originates in the part of the brain that was directly impacted, into a high-pitched vibration. I was blinded both by the pain and the pulsing electric shocks of the malfunctioning nerve. Michael grabbed the radio clipped to my shoulder strap of my pack. Chris is dead, he said, and I would have looked like it. Radios up and down the mountain sang the words of people sickened by the sound of the impact and gripped by fear of more flying bottles. Over a 30-plus year career as a guide... I've been certified and recertified in wilderness medicine a dozen times. The concept of increasing cranial pressure always comes up. It means swelling of the brain and can be fatal. I was blind and at the edge of consciousness. The instantaneous migraine and nausea were terrible, but it was the risk of seizures and coma that really worried me. I was at 27,000 feet and just didn't want to die up there. I thought of the sorrow on the faces of those bodies that I'd walked around on so many of the 8,000-meter peaks. We might comfort ourselves by saying that they died doing what they loved, but I can tell you that they died cold, hungry, and lonely. No one wants to spend eternity like that. So my only hope was to descend as fast and as far as possible while I could. Relying on instinct and training, I wrapped my arms around the ropes and stumbled and slid down the slopes. I fought to Camp 3 where I grabbed the pack straps of Carl Kobler, an old friend and leader of a Swiss expedition, and he led me through the loose rocks and drifting snows along the crest of the ridge toward the North Col. As the hours passed, my vision went from black to jello. I was now looking through a foot-thick block of clear jello, but with the vibrating nerve Every blurry thing jumped up and down. As we descended, the jello thinned, though the objects kept jumping. I reached the North Pole by early afternoon and was guided by a Sherpa into ABC as the sun set. It took me five days, by foot, jeep, and jet, to make it from high camp to the Tibetan side of Mount Everest to the offices of the neurosurgeons at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. They pumped me full of dyes and examined my brain. Dr. David Newman-Toker told me, It looks like you've been in a motorcycle accident, but you weren't wearing a helmet, and your head bounced and bounced on the pavement. Showing me the computerized images, he pointed out the damage. These are all scabs, and these are shear planes caused by layers of your brain moved at different but incredibly fast speeds. It'll take at least a year for this to heal. One of his partners told me that I was an idiot for climbing Everest, but a lucky one for not being permanently brain damaged. The vibrating vision lasted for weeks, and it was almost six months before I could exercise again, 
even just a single push-up would trigger exercise-induced migraines, confining me to a bed where I had to lie in complete silence and darkness for hours. I was extremely lucky, both to be alive and to recover quickly and completely. Eight months after the accident, I was guiding again in Ecuador. Twelve months later, I summited lots without oxygen. A lot of us were lucky that season on Everest, and thankfully, no one died during that epic descent from the mountain. Two of the TV contestants and a bunch of the crew summited Everest a week after the rescue, and I am still climbing. Thanks for tuning in. Life lesson, keep your head on a swivel. We've got another great slate of unbelievable stories coming your way. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of those. I'd like to thank Noisy Waters for the music. Thanks for listening, and again, thanks for Outdoor Research for helping us bring these stories to life.